everybody. Welcome to the Disciple Makers Podcast by Discipleship.org. This is Dave Stovall, and I'm so excited to introduce this episode. We are kicking off a series of fresh interviews for you guys, all centered around the topic of disciple-making culture. In this kickoff episode, Bobby Harrington with guests Renee Sproles and Bart Shaw delve deep into this topic, and they discuss the need to create a culture that values Bible reading, memorization, sharing of faith, and personalized interactions. They also emphasize the important role of beliefs, behaviors, and narrative in shaping this culture. Let's dive in. Let's hear from Bobby Harrington, Renee Sproles, and Bart Shaw in this special episode about disciple-making culture. Enjoy the episode, everybody. I'm Bobby Harrington, and I want to welcome everybody to this first podcast of 2024. It is the introductory podcast on disciple-making culture. And uh, if you've been following us, you know that our forum coming up May 1st and 2nd in Indianapolis will be on disciple-making culture. And I'm super excited about it because I actually believe it's the most important conversation, if applied to our churches, that would lead to disciple-making churches. So I have a couple special guests with me. First is my friend and colleague, Renee Sproles, who is the Director of Cultural Engagement at Renew.org, which means that Renee is a really good thinker. She's also, I got to say, a pretty good writer, recently publishing a book on men and women. Uh, Renee also is a disciple maker. She uh, disciples women, and one of her fortes is discipling young women who are wives and mothers and helping them to see God's ways in what is often a chaotic and uh, it's a chaotic world and a world where a lot of people are not being trained and discipled into things that young women uh, knew more readily 50 years ago. So way to go, Renee. Thank you for joining us. And uh, in addition to Renee is my friend Bart Shaw, who wears a couple of hats at Traders Point Christian Church. And I just got to say before, uh, his titles are Pastor of Discipleship to Traders Point or a campus pastor. But let me tell you about Bart, what I know about Bart. Bart has a hunger to be a disciple who makes disciples and helps a church to be full of people who are disciples who make disciples. And Bart's involved in a huge shift at Traders Point that hosted us last year for our national forum. And uh, they're just earnest about making the shift. So thank you, both of you. And uh, since we're going to talk about disciple-making culture, I just want to ask you to jump in with any initial thoughts on a blog that we're going to feature. If you go to discipleship.org, you can find this blog. It's called, Why is the Culture of a Disciple-Making Church So Important? And the subtitle is updated because this is a blog that first came out four years ago, and we are updating it because we think it's a brief, short blog that helps everybody with a good introduction to this topic. So, Renee, let me start with you. What's your initial reaction about the topic? 
Well, I've got my notes here from um, where I read it in preparation for this conversation. And I love the tagline at the top, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And that is so true as a mom who was a homeschool mom who was creating a culture in the home. And um, and then later as an employee at our church and now working for Renew.org. Uh, um, culture is the thing. It's the water that we swim in and we're the fish. And a lot of times we don't even know the assumptions that we bring to the culture around us. So that's what that was my first impression is um, when you're talking about a disciple making culture. Um, my first thought is what assumptions am I bringing in to this conversation that um, that I'm not even questioning? So, uh, for example, my husband and I asked each other the question back in the um, 2010s, when should our children get a cell phone? Not should our children get a cell phone. You see the difference there? Because we were products of the culture being swept along. And so that's that's part of the conversation. And there's lots of other thoughts I have, but I want to give give Bart a chance to jump in here, too. No, that's a great start, Renee. Thanks. And and you stole mine. So I was going to say the same thing because I think you hit it the nail on the head, Bobby. I mean, culture does eat strategy for breakfast. It is the core of everything that we do. And we can have all of the the fancy strategies, the missions, the banners. I mean, I have, we just updated our mission, develop and deploy disciple makers. And like, we have a mug, we have all of the things that can help reinforce that. Those are great, but they you have to look for the fruit. And that's what we're kind of trying to get to the heart to right now. Like, what are the things we actually do? Um, what are the things, the stories we tell, the stories we celebrate? What are we seeing the Lord do in our midst? That's really who we are in our culture. And so the church has a little bit of an identity crisis, and we're trying to right that ship. We're trying to find who we are in this new world. And it's going to require cultures in a lot of churches to shift from consumers to producers. And that's a big disciple-making shift that has to take Boy, place. Boy, isn't that a big shift? We're, we're also this season, and I just want to encourage all of our listeners, or if you're watching us on YouTube, uh, to know that uh, it's going to be really worth it to follow discipleship.org over the next four months, because we're also going to go through the material from a book that was published 10 years ago called Disciple Shift, which uh, I wrote with Jim Putman and Robert Coleman. And uh, we're going to talk about the shifts that are a part of the macro picture on shifting a culture. I want to jump in, and I actually love that you guys started with Peter Drucker's comment that uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. In the article that we're talking about, Louis Gertzner, the former CEO of IBM, took it a step further and he said, organizational culture eats strategy for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And uh, I just want to say, I really think that's true. So let me contrast. And then, Bart, I'm going to start with you and then we'll go to Renee. I want to contrast what many of us do in church leadership. So to this day, I'm a lead pastor, really fortunate to be a lead pastor at the same church that we planted 26 years ago. But one of the things I have learned is we've had a lot of strategies. We've had a lot of plans. We've had a lot of goals. We've had a lot of initiatives. And all of those fall short if they don't affect the culture of a church. In fact, if you don't change the culture, all of those things pale 
to insignificance and don't result in lasting change. So, uh, Bart, you're dealing with a, a large body of people. I don't know how many thousands, but talk to us about the challenge this presents for you guys. The challenge of moving the culture and shifting? Yes. Yeah, it's massive. Um, and I, I mean, I recently we did Daniel McCoy and I did a little article um, that kind of highlighted some of the challenges we're up against in the mega church. And I think one of the beauties and the curses is you do have a lot uh, to manage, but when it's kind of, it's like the old analogy of a cruise ship and a speedboat, right? It takes a long time to move that big ship, but when it moves, it's really hard to move it back a different direction. And so yes. we know we have to put a lot of energy and effort into making that shift. And it takes time. It always takes time never as fast as we want, but it's gonna take all of those little tweaks and changes to get us there. And so we're just trying to be intentional, working from the top down. If our leaders, if our staff, if we don't live it out and embody the true shifts that are required to be make disciples and be disciples, our people never will live it out. And it will die with, with me and us and any of us that are trying to do that. And so we're really trying to build it from the leaders down and that's where we're starting. That's really good. It's the, the idea that there's a book came out years ago called Leading Change by Cotter. And uh, he starts off by saying you create a crisis, but then you have to have a guiding coalition. And so right. once, once everybody in leadership's on board, that's so crucial. Well, Renee, when you think of then failed strategies, you know, having both been in a school environment, in a homeschool environment, in a church, working for a church, seeing a culture change in the church, what are some thoughts that you have about the idea of strategies, goals, and uh, uh, actions that may not change the culture. Well, I love some strategies and some goals. You know, I, you couldn't homeschool very well if you didn't have kind of a plan for the year, someplace you're aiming for. You'll never hit what you're not aiming for. And I truly appreciate your comment, Bart, about it coming from leadership first, because that's so true. If they're not bought in, then your people will know it, whether that's your children to the parents or your congregation to the leadership. So your your leadership has to be bought in to it. And yet, and yet, you know me, Bobby, you know, my heart is for obedience. You know, obedience is the best teacher. And so when thinking in terms of whether it's a church or a family or a group of women, what you really want are is obedience in increments, like little small wins, small wins. You don't want a goal that's so big that people look at it and go, well, I can't do that, so I'm not going to do anything. That's right. And so I think that making it accessible and doable and holding people accountable is um, is really an important part of what you need so to do. So let, let's come to that because... One of the parts of creating a culture is the idea of obedience. I want to introduce the paradigm that we're going to be using uh, throughout the next uh, four months. I'll say five months till through through May. Uh, I want to introduce the paradigm on what creates a culture. But let me just, for our listeners and those who are watching, describe it a little more succinctly, because some people... Uh, watching or listening are going to be thinking, okay, exactly what is a culture? Uh, the Harvard Business Review described it this way. It is the values, beliefs, and behaviors practiced in an organization formed over time because they are rewarded or punished 
by formal or informal rules, rituals, and behaviors. Well, that sounds a little bit sophisticated, and it definitely is a business concept with reward and punishment. But psychologically, the same things are true in a family or in a community or in a church. The McKinsey Institute, I like the way they said it. And uh, I really like it when I think of like the church where I serve. Culture is how we do things around here. It's kind of like, well, this is how we do it. This is who we are. This is, uh, this is what we do. And uh, I, I like that because I think it gets at the thing. It's like, it's, culture is your identity. It's your identity in terms of your values, your practices, and your language. So I'm going to put on the screen a little picture. But before I do that, did you guys have any other things you wanted to say just to help our listeners or the people watching identify what culture is? Yeah, I mean, well, you go first, Bart, and I'll go. Love it. Sure. Um, So I, I think we're kind of already getting on some of these, but the idea of accountability some goals, some metrics, like those are so essential. Like you can't have nothing. The strategy is not the main driver that makes culture happen, but you have to have good strategy. And so I think when we talk about making disciples, making cultural shifts, it will require accountability to those things that we uphold. It will require maybe some new metrics that we're evaluating to see if we're actually hitting the mark. Uh, and the stories we tell will have to change. What Listen for what your people are doing and saying. To me, those are some really big buckets that you fill as you're making that cultural shift as well, kind of in that same line of what we're just talking about. Yeah, I think that's right. And I'm just, I was just gonna add, um, because we're made in the image of God, we are culture makers. Humans are by default culture makers. So it's not if we're gonna create a culture in our churches, it's what kind of culture are we gonna create? Oh, wow. It's gonna happen, it's gonna happen. And so it's that's just good to keep in mind, it's inevitable. So I'm gonna uh, pause again. Before I jump in, I want to describe the typical successful church in the eyes of many people in North American culture, because it has a culture with certain practices. And uh, In fact, I'll, t- I'll tell you what I'm going to do first. Let me describe, and I'll share for everybody who's watching, the uh, graphic that we created based on a lot of work that Brian Zare and Todd Wilson had done. Uh, in a book called Spark. Now, Todd is a very close personal friend of mine. We've had a lot of conversations around creating a culture. But if you're with us, you're going to be seeing a, a diagram that has at its core values and core beliefs. Then outside of that are behaviors, and outside of that are narrative. Let's talk about the first one, just so that everybody can know. The narrative, I'm sorry, we'll start with values and beliefs. It's what we truly believe. Again, it's not what we say we believe, but it's what we truly believe. I've gone through an exercise recently with my own leadership to identify sort of my core value that I end up circling back to all the time. And, you know, I'd like to think it's Jesus. I'd like to think it's the gospel. And all those things are true. But it comes out of something that's even deeper than that for me, and it's the value that I place on Scripture. Believing, adhering to, and following Scripture alone as my final authority. Because that effect, that belief is really true of me, you're going to see it in my behaviors, 
You're going to see it in how I talk. Well, you have things you really believe, and a church will have that. Like, what do you really value and believe? Patrick Lincioni, the uh, leadership expert, says that an organization should only have three or four things that are their core, rock-solid core values. Of course, and then we have beliefs, faith statements. These are the hills that we're either willing to die on or to be wounded defending. And every every church needs clarity on that. What They're what truly matters, okay? So you have those things. And I'm just going to say for the discipleship.org tribe, at the core is we value being disciples of Jesus and making disciples of Jesus, okay? Then that leads to the second thing, which is behavior. What disciplines, what behaviors are we committed to so that they become habits? See, see, these habits and behaviors are the essence of living out our beliefs. They're the, we might call the hand expression of what's in our head. <clears throat> They're the habits that form lifestyles and lifestyles reflect behaviors. So when we say culture is, here's how we do things around here, say at my church, one of the things I'm grateful for is we have a culture where everybody's in a discipling group. It's just like, is what we do around here. We may not have the best preaching on the planet, but we have a culture where everybody knows that we're about being in discipling groups. Well, that's good. That's our behavior. And then thirdly is narrative. It's how we talk about ourselves. It's our language. Like language, you work on your language and then your language works on you. It's our language, descriptions, and sayings. And it's our stories. It's our story. Like, what's our unique story? Hey, we're all disciples who make disciples. In my church, it'd be like, we made a big shift several years ago. And the stories we tell, we like to celebrate disciple-making stories. So if somebody's being baptized, we have the person who discipled them, baptizing them. Or if they're baptized publicly, we talk about this person's being baptized and -and so-and-so is going to disciple them. So those are the three levels. We're going to spend a little bit of time here on it. But notice that dominant cultures have congruency throughout. So in other words, the values and beliefs are reflected in the behaviors, which are reflected in the stories we tell in the language. And then their intentionality. We intentionally do those things all the time. That's an introduction to the paradigm I'm going to start off by talking about the dominant culture of church in North America and I'm going to I'm going to create a straw man. Uh but I it's an important straw man. And it's going to be built around preaching and preachers, praise and worship leaders and programs. The 3 Ps. And here's what I want to say about core values. The North American church has valued and made a core belief, great preaching, praise and worship, and programs. We have uh, persuaded people, and people have persuaded us as church leaders that you got a successful church if you got great preaching, great praise and worship, and great programs. So that shows itself up in behaviors. In your typical church, 
it's a successful church if you can get a great preacher. And if he can have, you know, the best band and the best, you know, lights and sounds and LED screens and, you know, just wow. And the best programs, those are the behaviors. And so people want to sign up for the right programs and go to the right church with the preacher, the praise and worship. And then we have a narrative about that. Well, our preacher, he's a great preacher. Did you hear the preacher this past Sunday? Wasn't he awesome? And oh, the praise and worship. So-and-so is such a great praise and worship leader. Or our, our church just has the best programs for kids. Now, why am I saying that? I think all of those things I've just said create a culture that's not a disciple-making culture. Now, are they are disciples going to be found in those churches? Yes. And are some of those things helpful in uh, creating disciples? Yes. It's better to have a good preacher than a bad one. But is the emphasis on the three Ps that our culture prizes, praise and worship, preaching, and programs, Often, those things actually don't make disciples. So I'm going to pause here. Bart and Renee, jump in. Let's talk about the paradigm. I'm going to leave it on the screen, but let's talk about the paradigm and talk about the challenge of this dominant culture. Let me just say this before I I'll go to you first, Bart. We have a national study on disciple-making cultures that is on discipleship.org. And uh, we found in this national study that Discipleship.org did with Exponential that less than 5% of churches have a disciple-making culture. What that means is 19 out of 20 churches try to, or at least tell themselves, <clears throat> that they can make disciples by the, the three Ps of preaching, praise, and worship, and programs versus a disciple-making culture. We also have an inventory, uh, a statistically valid test you can take for your church, and I'll talk more about that in a minute. So, Bart, go ahead and jump in and and give me some reaction. Yeah, I mean, ouch. <laughs> I mean, that is the church uh, in America, for sure. And uh, that's there's been reasons for that. I mean, we've had to adapt and contextualize the culture. Some of those things are good, some probably not so good. And then obviously, the emphasis can get one or two degrees off. And over time, you're like, well, you're way off. Um, well, and sometimes I'll say this in defense of, of that culture. I think 20 years ago, you could get by with emphasizing those things in a way that you can't now. Yeah. It, in other words, you're always contextualizing and trying to meet the needs yes. of people. And at some point, it was relevant. It was helpful. And it brought the church alive to people that never saw it and heard it that way before, which is great but then you can get stuck there. And so one of the things that, that's always stuck with me, Bobby, I read uh, Mike Breen's book years ago, How to Build a Disciple-Making Culture. And he said something to the effect that if you look to build the church, you rarely get disciples. But yes. if you look to make disciples, you always get the church. I don't know who first coined it, if it was him or someone else, but I love that. And it's what a so great line. Yeah, when you're trying to build the church, you rarely get disciples when you follow that methodology. But if you get at the heart of obedience and what it means to make disciples and followers of Jesus. If you give agency to the people, it fundamentally changes and you get, you make disciples, you will get the natural byproduct, which is the church. And so we are trying to reverse that trend. And that is a, a cultural wave inside the church that we're fighting against. And it's hard because we're fighting against the consumer mindset we've built. 
And so we're having to try to help people reimagine what it looks like to have agency as a disciple, to disciple their kids and their families, and to be a disciple maker when they thought only the professional can do that thing. It's done so well. That's a challenge we face. If you do things really well, then people don't think they can ever do it. And so we're really trying to figure out ways to do that differently. Yeah. Renee. Yeah, I do think that it is a challenge to move from a come and watch to come alongside and do it with me to go and do. And um, and come and watch is not it's not unnecessary. I mean, you, you need good teaching. But what I'm finding is that we in North America have really kind of viewed the human person as brains on a stick. And we think if we mentally assented to the right information, it's equivalent to actually doing it. And that's not the case. <laughs> so, um, and, I, and I think those are actually intention, your three points that with the beliefs and then the behaviors and then the narrative, because on one level, your people to have correct behaviors need to know right beliefs. They need to know right things. That's part yes. of repentance, right? Right. And yet, a lot of times you can work backwards. You can have a, you can require a behavior that brings great understanding to the belief, to the scripture. So obeying scripture can lead to right thinking. Yes. Um, So requiring your people to obey, even when they don't understand it, especially when they don't understand it, especially when they don't like it. And celebrating that when they do um, can be super powerful. Oh, that's great. Let me ask you this, or let me make a statement, and then I'd like you to react to it. So uh, I believe that North Americans have been trained by our culture to be consumers. Here's what I mean. We uh, are trained by our media by television, by radio, by the internet, to think of ourselves as we are the customers and the customers should get what the customers want. In other words, if I'm a customer and I don't like a product, I'm not going to buy it, okay? Instead, I want to get good products and that's my almost responsibility. And in a culture like ours, we have been so groomed to be consumers that I've concluded that it's actually not the fault of the church as much as oftentimes the church is trying to respond to the customer. Like the customer gets what the customer wants and it's kind of like, okay, we got to, we got to meet their needs. Let me give you an example. I have some friends uh, who are, most of my friends growing up were not Christians. I was not a Christian. I became a Christian as an adult, young adult. And uh, my non-Christian friends were very curious about it. And I noticed that their questions were always the same as what even mature Christians do. And that is they wanted to know how many people are coming. Like, it's got to be good if a lot of people are there. And, you know, are they happy with the sermons? And are they happy with the programs? So my my non-Christian friends have the same attitude that many Christians have. And it, it's this consumer thing. Now, 
I want, I want to say this, Bart, before you jump in and respond. I'm not advocating bad sermons. I'm not advocating bad praise and worship. And I'm not saying there's no programs. I do think we need to have a limited number of programs so that people can really be in discipling relationships. But I think there's way there's been so much emphasis on those things. Mm-hmm. For sure there has. And, and that's the challenge we're facing, Bobby. I mean, how do we how do we give more ministry away? I think as a church, that's something we're really challenged with doing in our ministry circles is how do we empower, enable the people around us to really take the mantle of ministry? That is the challenge that we're up against. And it's really changing expectations. Um, we're, we're, I mean, we're even reevaluating things. We're always evaluating things, but I mean, I'm thinking through even how we welcome people and how do we do first steps and things like that. A lot of it's still very consumer. What do you need? What do you want? And maybe we begin to flip that script a little bit of this is who we are. This is what we're about. Would you like to be a part of it? Yeah. Just really trying to help them understand that we believe there's something better for them. And we don't have all the answers, but maybe we have a, a pathway for them that's clear enough that they can decide to jump on or not. But we are always fighting that consumer mindset all the time. We've created that, that monster. And so has culture. And so it's not just the church, but culture at large has created that. And when we're having to fight against it, because the gospel is really kind of the opposite of that. So yeah, I see it all the time. We fight it all the time. We are part of it. I mean, we're trying to write it all the time. Yeah. Same with us, Renee. Yeah. I, you know, we're fighting against not just consumer culture, but an expert culture. So we love our experts in the culture at large and in the church and, um, and kind of helping people realize like, no, no, no. If you are a first grader, you can go teach a kindergartner. If you are a fifth grader, you can help a fourth or a third grader. Just in some of this, the simplest ways, um, we have a huge Sunday school program at our church. Hundreds and hundreds of people come to that. And we're not going to just throw that out the the window because we maybe want to push discipleship. But what my husband and I have found as we teach Sunday morning is kind of turning on its head what traditional Sunday school teaching is, has really helped to create this culture of discipleship. So we will a lot of times do teaching for about 10 minutes and then have the class come up, turn to their neighbor and come up with good questions. We circle them up, a handful of people in the middle of the room, and then they discuss the topic with our guidance if we need to kind of, if I need to like correct a heresy or something, I'm there, I can like redirect. But they were very taken aback at first when we started doing this with them because they were expecting, well, aren't you the experts? You just tell us, you just tell us what to think. And it's like, no, I want you to sing. And I want you to wrestle with this. And I I keep telling them, like, pretend you're explaining this to your second grader. Pretend you're tra- these questions are being asked by your third grader and you're trying to explain to them, like, how to understand this and really pushing it to them. And expecting them to come back um, next week from the teaching they've received and give testimony about what they did. <laughs> how know? they followed and, up on it. How they act, acted on it. That's the narrative that you're looking for. Like, and, and you're creating these wins. Like, yeah, that's what we're looking for. Yeah, that's what we're looking for. That's good. And so just something as simple as changing how you do Sunday school. If you're not going to, you know, stop doing Sunday school. I like Sunday school then that's just a way you can start to create a disciple-making culture. Now they come into class and they go, are we going to circle up? And and at first- That's your culture. Yes. That's great. (laughs) At first there's terror. Now there's excitement. (laughs) Oh, that's good. That is so good, Renee. I love that so much. You know, 
I often use this example because it's very similar. I preached a few months ago here at Trader's Point and talked on discipleship on the very same thing. The idea of martial arts, when my, my kid was a little bit younger, he took martial arts, Taekwondo, and I was blown away when I saw these kids who had been there for like a month. They learned the basic move. They were not a black belt. They didn't know hardly anything, but they learned the basic move. And the very next expectation when they became a yellow belt was to then teach the white belt. It wasn't the blue belt. It wasn't the black belts that were teaching the white belts. It was the yellow belt. And every step along the way, that's what was happening. And I just saw disciple making unfold right before my eyes. And it's exactly what you just described, Brene. I mean, we've got to recapture that as a church. Like, how do we give agency to our people? How do we let them, they don't have to know it all, but teach someone what you do know. And then like report back, give them some feedback, correct the heresy, but help them, empower them to go do the work of disciple making. Like that's the picture that I often keep in front of me when I think of that, that martial arts, it works really well, very much like that. That's great. So I want to make it very personal in the sense of how this applies to the individual. We'll have various podcasts, eBooks, and flip books that we're going to take people through to help them with the church when it comes to culture. But Bart and Renee, both of you try to help individuals to develop what we call, what I call the disciple maker lifestyle. And Bart, let me start with you on this because one of the reasons I invited you onto this kickoff podcast is because of a conversation you and I have been having as you're trying to come up with a with habits for everyday disciples based on the head, the heart, and the hands. So tell us a little bit about that. And then I actually want to tie it into our diagram on creating a disciple-making culture. And I want our listeners and those who are watching to think of, let's talk about the culture of an individual. So it'd be the lifestyle, the beliefs, the, the values, the, the things they say for an individual. And I'd like to sort of transition to it by Bart's desire to help people with the disciple maker framework based on the head, heart, and hands. Bart? Yeah, that's great, Bobby. Yeah, that's the conversation we've been having, just trying to figure out how we best train and equip our leaders. And we want to develop and deploy them as disciple makers. Like that is our mission in our group space for everything that we do. And so we're trying to reverse engineer a little bit. Well, what does that person look like? What do they need? Um, obviously, we know many of the things and you can make that list really exhaustive. And so we're trying to pare it down, like you said earlier in the episode, just down to those bare essentials of three, four, five things. And so we started thinking in those buckets of head, heart, and hands, and we're still working on this. So I'm, I'm waiting to hear your guys' answers, but we started thinking through like, what do they need to know? Or what is the thing that's cognitively on their mind? And I think deep well spiritually is a big one. I mean, that's something where they have to know scripture. They have to be with Jesus. And that's something that starts there as well. I know that's heart as well. There's also something that's very intentional about how they invest in other people. And so like, those are some things that we're beginning to think through. How do we capture that? How do you quantify that? When you look at the heart, these are people who have a growth mindset. They rely on the Holy Spirit. They have genuine care for other people. You guys know you've been discipled by people. They care about you. They care about your family. Yeah. It's not just a program. There's something that's very sincere there, very authentic. The hands, I mean, there's a lot of things that can fit in those buckets too. But I think sharing hope, sharing your story, those people who embody disciple makers, like they meet the needs of other people. They care about multiplication. They call you to more. There's an element of challenge that's built into their loving voice. And they're ultimately replicating themselves. 
And so like, those are some of the things, like when I think about what this person looks like, these are the things we want our leaders to embody, but how do we pare it down a little bit, clean it up a little bit, make it very clear so that we can equip them and train them on these things to live them out, not just training segments, like that's a part of it, but how do we help them embody it, live it out into some of those other buckets, you know, as well. So let me tie it into this diagram because I started thinking about, I thought it ties in. So if you think of at the core of who we are, will be our beliefs and values, the things that are in our head. Okay. Now I do think sometimes we use metaphors that don't quite fit the Bible. So I don't want to say when the Bible talks about loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, it's dividing it up the way we are right now. I'm using it more of a common understanding, like head is thought, facts, beliefs, heart is story, emotion, language, the feeling side, and then hands are what you do. Now, this will come out today and over the next several weeks, but Shadonke Johnson rocked my world. He told me that you need to worry more about what you do more than what you say or talk about. And Renee, I know that's important to you and that you've learned that as well. And I say that by way of compliment. I feel like you're one of the most articulate people on the value of obedience, even when you don't understand. But talk to us, if you would, a little bit about the head, heart, hands, personal culture that we're creating within people. Yeah, I have um, a Christian psychologist friend who uh, once said to me, Renee, you always do what you believe. And I was like, well, I absolutely, that's not true. Absolutely not. And I wrestled with that for quite some time. And in the end, I think he's right. And it, it, it fits this paradigm you're talking about, because if I'm doing something wrong, if I'm um, disrespecting my husband, it's not because I don't know what Ephesians 5 tells me to, um, in terms of how I am to interact with my husband. It is because I am likely believing some sort of lie about our relationship or who I am, who he is, who God is. And so there's a tension here. Um, as much as I am like a fan of obedience, bringing understanding, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey. Yeah. That's that tension. It's, um, is it, if we love Jesus, we'll obey? Or is it our obedience brings the love? I think it's both. I, I think it feeds into ourselves. So when I'm working with a person, to bring it back to the, the individual, when I'm working with a young woman and she is telling me, you know, my husband works all the time. I feel abandoned. Our children never see him. Um, that's one of the first things I go to when, I, when I'm sure that he does love his wife. You know, I know them well enough to know, like, he wouldn't want her to feel that way. We just, we go to Jesus in prayer and we say, all right, Jesus, can you show us what lie he might be believing about his relationship with her? And Jesus always shows up. Holy Spirit always is ready to answer those questions to um, mend a relationship between a husband and wife. And and um, it's like, oh, he feels like a failure with this child that they're having a really hard time with. He hides. He's hiding at work. 
He doesn't want to come home and face his failure. He gets pats on the back at work. So values and behaviors, they're intertwined. They're inextricably intertwined. And so I, I just tell my, tell my women, you know, keep the truth on your phone. Get that note app out. Use that technology for good. If you need reminding, what pick your favorite verse that describes the gospel and keep it ever before you. Because if you're not clear about the gospel, then you're, I mean, that's it. Like, you got to have the gospel clear. Because the gospel, the heart of the gospel is forgiveness. And that's um, like, that is every behavior. That's every interaction. Yeah. It's constantly yeah. understanding Jesus's sacrifice to get you forgiven so that you can in turn release forgiveness to the other people in your life. So I feel like I'm kind of rambling, but it's this tension with beliefs and behaviors and the narratives. Wow. Like you're the reason I believe one of the reasons God is really particular about the words we use is because they have actual power. Yes. Like, don't say mean things because they're mean. It's like, no, you can actually bless and you can actually curse. Mm. You have way more power than you believe with your tongue, says James. And so use that for good. Do not use that for evil. And that's that narrative part of this circle. And I just love it. I love doing life with women and living this out and holding each other accountable. There's nothing more fun in the world than to do life. And nothing more loving for another person as well. Oh, it's so great. But unless unless we, again, tell the story and hang out the carrot, don't use the whip. Tell the beautiful stories, you know, of the wins and the marriages and the mothers and the children and the fathers and the children and the relationships restored. Like, who doesn't want that? Yeah, that's right. So uh, really grateful for you two spending the time. Renee, I'm going to come back to you. Uh, Any last words you want to share? And then Bart will give you the last, last words. Well, it's not super holy, but when I was thinking about culture, I was like, who's got, like, who has got it going on with culture? Yes. Chick-fil-A. Yes. Renee, that's holy. That's holy. (laughs) It's God's chicken, right? Well, that's what I was thinking. I was like, they... Every Chick-fil-A you walk into, the one I walked into in Indianapolis when I was at the conference last year, the one here in Murfreesboro where I am, doesn't matter where you go. When you walk into Chick-fil-A, they have their people trained. They have these four things that are, I I went and looked them up on uh, the internet. They value eye contact, a smile, a friendly tone, and saying my pleasure. Wow. You're going to get that. Everywhere you go, they train them to do it. They expect them to go out and do it. And um, and they celebrate it. And they reward their people for behaving in those ways. And so I just thought, that's it, man. That's it. Find your head, heart, and hands. Go be Chick-fil-A. That's beautiful. <laughs> that's beautiful. Uh, I love that. Well, uh, I'll jump in too. Um, I think final word, Bobby. Do it yourself, like go make disciples. So I've seen so many pastors and leaders and people that want to have a disciple making culture. They want things to change and be better. They're beginning to get awakened to that idea, but they have not yet structured their life in such a way where they're doing it. And so 
I would say start there. Don't go the cart before the horse trying to make disciples if you're not actually making disciples yourself. So find a method, a tool, begin to implement it, use it, make disciples yourself. And if you don't know where to start, and even if you do, the starting point is prayer. I mean, we, I know we didn't spend a lot of time on that today, but I know you guys both care about that deeply. Like really begin with prayer. Like, Lord, break my heart for what breaks yours. You know, raise up workers for the harvest field. Open my eyes. All of those things will begin to change your heart in the way that leads towards making disciples. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Bart and Renee. And what a blessing it has been to have you on this podcast. And we will look forward to the continuing dialogue with both of you. Uh, This is Bobby Harrington. Thanks for being with us. And we look forward to this next season as we focus on creating disciple-making cultures. Thank you so much for listening to the episode today, everybody. I hope that you enjoyed that one as much as I did. Up next, we're going to be hearing from Shidanke Johnson, and he's talking about the role of discipline within disciple-making culture. So if you haven't hit the subscribe button yet, please do so so that you know when I drop that next episode. And as always, I appreciate you being a listener of this podcast and hope that you enjoy and make the most of the rest of your day. God bless you.